Um, okay, so it is. Okay, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, tonight. Um, I just met him this weekend, but I'm really excited to hear him. This is Danny D from Los Angeles. Hey, everybody, I'm Danny. I'm an alcoholic. And I thought we could have just called it a night after Angel read how it works. Don't you think? That was awesome. Glad I was here for that. Um, it's very nice to be here. Always a privilege and an honor to, to uh, participate in AA. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Greg for having me here, uh, Joe for staying in contact with me, Susan for uh, being so nice all weekend, and my amazing host, Eric, who was at the airport on time. Those of you who know Eric probably don't believe it. But he was, and he's been awesome. My new friend, Alex, we went and got tattooed today. And her tattoo artist came to the conference here. Right? Jerry. Now Jerry's got a bunch of new friends. That's just how it works. Now I got a bunch of new friends here in Eugene. What a nice place and a, a beautiful uh, little city and a nice conference. You don't even look like alcoholics, except this table here. This, this, especially you. Thank you for such a beautiful talk last night, Pixie. So, yeah. All right, here we go. Summerfest, the joy of living. My favorite line in the big book is on page 132. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. Yeah. I'll tell you this little story. When I was going in and out, in and out, in and out, I was over at my sponsor's house uh, at his office, and he has this book. My sponsor's gone around the world many times and taught the steps, and he has this book. It's the book. And he was on the phone, and I wanted to look. If, I, if you let me pick up your big book, I'll, I'll ask you, can I look at your big book? I ask first, because, you know, there might be an inventory in there, so you have to ask. And I turn to page 132 to see if you have, if we share, if you might have it highlighted or anything, just to create some unity. So my sponsor's on the phone, and I, I'm going to take the book out. And I, I'm thinking when I take it out, like young Frankenstein, like the, the, the bookcase is going to flip around, because it's the book. So I take it out, nothing happens. And I look over my shoulder and I turn to the page 132 and not only is the line, it's not even high, there's a bracket around it in pen and it says in the margin, this is Danny's favorite line in the big book. <laughs> and then there's a line drawn straight to the bottom and it says, Danny is your favorite sponsee. Wow. Oh. I turned into a puddle. Favorite! I closed it real quick, put it back in there because I didn't want him to know that I knew. And then I went around to my little inner circle and I'd made them swear, I'm gonna tell you something you can never let him know. <laughs> and we'd pinky swear and spit on it and all that and, and I'd tell them. So fast forward, about eight years later, maybe, about, I don't know, about four years ago, now I'm a little more sure-footed I have, I have a little time sober. It's the broad daylight. He's on the phone again, and I want to look at it in broad daylight. Right? And I turn to it, and there it is. There it is. This is Danny's favorite line in the book. Danny's your favorite. Wait a minute. That's my handwriting. <laughs> at some point while I was going in and out, in and out, in and out, I had taken his book and just help myself to the fact that, by the way, I am your favorite, and this is his favorite line, so. And I showed him when I got off the phone, when he got off the phone, and we all had a little laugh about it. How many people here think that you are your sponsor's favorite? Come on. Of course you are, how could you not be? I make him tell me all the time, I miss best work. 
uh, my sponsor, you got to hear him. He was here last year. And we'll get to him in a little bit. So I'll start like, uh, like I do. Uh, uh, my father was a colonel in the Air Force. I'm a military brat. I had two brothers. I'm the middle. I'm the scapegoat. Everything's my fault. I had so much potential in it only if I would apply myself. Right? I am the kid in your neighborhood that no other kid is allowed to play with. Here I am. And my first tool for living, the first thing that I can recall was, I want out. I want out of this family, out of this earth suit. Something is wrong. This ain't right. I went out the window, out the car. We used to have this Rambler Ambassador station wagon. And the seat in the back. <laughs> and it was perfect for me. They made a movie about it. It's called The Way, Way Back. I loved that seat because I didn't have to participate. And it was away from the colonel's fist. Because whenever he heard anything in the back that he didn't like, which was all the time, he just starts swinging, you know? So we had little slogans around my house. You know, here we have keep it simple and easy does it and first things first. My house was uh, uh, quit crying or I'll give you something to cry about. Uh, take it like a man. I was seven, right? <laughs> things like that. We had this leather belt. We had this leather belt, you know, and if you put your hand back there to block the leather belt, the leather belt became the belt buckle, you know, so I used to get that. And uh, don't worry, the story has a happy ending. <laughs> Just hang in there. How's everybody doing, okay? Isn't it great to be out of the bathroom? Huh? Where's the people, where's the people that were on carpet patrol? Are you here tonight? There they go. I love you. This is a fundamentally better evening, wouldn't you say? For those of us who have been in jail cells that are made to hold 40 people that hold like 120, or there we are stuck in the, don't let him go in the bathroom. What does he do in there? Anyway. <laughs> if you're new, and you hear people laughing. They're going, yeah, I did that. That's what that is. If you're new and you're in here, I hope that at some point during my talk, you can say me too. I felt like that. Yeah, I felt like that. Because if I came to tell you anything, if you're new in Alcoholics Anonymous, I came here to tell you that you can do it and don't give up. Because I'm the guy that couldn't stay sober. I'm the guy that was not going to make it. So anyway, back in the story. I don't know, about. I started hearing that line I was going to hear all my life the one question everybody would ask me. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Why do you do that? Why did you hit that kid in the head with a brick? Why would you trade your soulmate for a glass of, of booze? Why do you drive away from your daughter, plastered up against the window, to go to the bar to spend her Christmas money at the bar? Why? Why would you do that? And until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I thought I was a loser and I was a bad person. And I read the doctor's opinion. I'm really telling you, we need to give that big book to a newcomer tomorrow. <laughs> we should tell him this is why we call it the big book. We expect you to have it read and highlighted by tomorrow. You know, until I read the doctor's opinion, it said that I have an allergy and that it explained a lot. It explained why I did the things I did. But when I was a kid, people started asking, what's wrong with you? And I started going to child psychiatrists, and they didn't have names for it. Like now, you know, they call it seeking negative attention in a dysfunctional family. They just said, he's out of control, you know? And I always was compare. I always felt so less than. I always felt comparing how I felt to how you look you know, and always comparing myself to the people with the perfect teeth, the tall people, the beautiful people, the smart people, and I knew I was never going to be like that, you know. We moved around a lot, of course, being in the Air Force, and every time we'd move, they'd give me an ID card, or what, index card, a little yellow index card, right? And it said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I never said, I want to be on a 72-hour involuntary hold. I want to wake up with a catheter in me. 
I want to live on the street. I never said that. I said, I want to be, when I sat behind a set of drums when I was 10 years old, I could play the drums. I don't know why, I just could, right? I'd just been given this gift to be able to have time. And I could drum, so I, I want to be the next John Bonham. If you don't know who that is, that was the drummer from Led Zeppelin. And alcohol killed him. So I had dreams, I had ambition, you know? And uh, moving around a lot was really convenient for somebody that was always blowing his life up, you know? And uh, I had never, I hear people take their first drink a lot when they go to the refrigerator and get their dad a beer. When they're little, they pass, they go around the dinner table and they give them a little sip of wine. I never, I never had anything uh, like that. I remember I was, I was 12 years old. We were living in uh, Washington, D.C. Nixon was president. We were stationed at the Pentagon. I had grown long hair to make my dad mad. <laughs> he used to give us crew cuts every other week in the kitchen. Right? We were like sheep. If you moved, you lost the ear. <laughs> so I grew my hair out at him, you know. And I was smoking uh, camel cigarettes. We didn't have any of that vape stuff then, you know. It was manly. <laughs> what happened to the Marlboro man? He went vegan. He went vegan. So we were smoking camel cigarettes, right? And I was 12 years old. I had really long hair. And uh, we were in Washington, D.C. And these kids took me out to a baseball dugout. And somebody had a bottle of Boone's Farm strawberry wine. As my sponsor would say, no grapes involved. Not a grape in the bottle, man. I was a little dude, I was 12 years old, and I drank the whole bottle because I knew if I stopped, I might not get it back. I instinctively knew. And I finished the whole thing. I just drank the whole thing, man. And that thing happened, just like that. That thing happens that separates me from the normal person. Suddenly I felt taller, I felt handsome, funny, I felt a part of. For the first time in my life, I felt like I exhaled. All my life, I just felt like I was in a knot, just waiting to be told, get out of here, nobody wants you here, or you're gonna get hit. And for that very first time, I was comfortable with the people I was with. And then I started throwing up. <laughs> I started throwing up, you know the kind of throw up like when you think your socks are gonna come out, you know? Just violently throwing up. And as I'm throwing up, I'm holding onto the fence and I'm remembering, if I'm not dead when this is done, man, I am doing this again, man. This is awesome. Awesome. And the next thing that happened, now I know this is Alcoholics Anonymous, singleness of purpose. I respect the podium. Everything I have in respect, I have for Alcoholics Anonymous. But here's what happened next. They were passing around this thing that looked like a cigarette, but it wasn't a cigarette. They were going like this. You know, you want to say, you want to say, excuse me, what are you doing? But you can't say that. Because then you'll know that I don't know and I'll have to kill you. And it's coming around. And it wasn't like, you know, the weed they're growing now. I guess NASA's growing. You know, like one hit can cure eye cancer. You know what I mean? And this stuff. You had to have like a double record album to, and you had to clean the seeds out of it, right? And it all had seeds. And I guess the person that rolled my first doobie didn't get that memo. And so as it's going around, I'm covered, my long hair's got chunks of strawberry puke in it. And it's going around, I'm thinking, well, I'm gonna do this better than he is. I'll, I'll win, right? And so I, pop! So the seed pops, sticks to my forehead, right? I got chunks of puke all over me. We're all watching my head is smoldering. And I'm thinking, well, this is probably part of it, you know? Just act like this is what happens, yeah. This is good. Best day of my life. For finally, for the first time in my young life, I knew I had a sense of purpose. I was going to ingest things, and I was going to get good at it. So uh, 
the beating started getting worse and worse. I remember uh, about that time I was getting a beating with an extension cord, and I remember I grabbed that cord, and I said, no, no, no. You're not going to ever see me cry again like that. And I, I brought those. I, I, I didn't like feelings. You know, if you're new and you feel kind of weird, those are called feelings. <laughs> you know, I used to, I would go to any lengths to keep from feeling, right? Because let's face it, it's not about up or down. It's about how do I get out of right here, right now? Because right here, right now, I'm terrified without anything in me. I'm I'm never going to have a wife like you. I'm never going to have a job like you. I'm nothing. But if I get enough of something in me, I feel zero. The absence of pain. That's all I'm looking for. The absence of fear. That last underlying emotion. That's I'm a fear-based creature, right? And it, and it comes out, usually in me, it came out in like anger, you know? I never had a grandpa with his arm around me on a fishing log explaining life to me. You know, it was just bunch of maniacs you know when I came into AA I'm the guy that showed you you know when you see the guy in the back of the room with his neck of course that's how I'm gonna be what am I gonna do excuse me does anyone have a hug for me <laughs> are you kidding me so, I, you know, I, I learned, man, you are never, I am never going to show you those feelings of weakness or pain. I'm going to stuff it all and keep it all in, you know. And uh, I started going to reform schools a lot. Um, uh, I got in trouble in San Antonio, Texas. We were in Texas. My father became the head of the inspector general's office for the Air Force. And while we were in Texas, I got in some trouble and they put me in jail. And my family moved to the Philippines. Now, only in AA do people laugh at that. <laughs> you know, if this was like the Kiwanis Club, you'd be like, oh my. <laughs> Not here. And on the same page, it says, we think that laughter and cheerfulness are useful. Because if you're new and you don't see us having fun, why would you stay? Right? right? right. Amen? Amen? Hallelujah? Hallelujah. I do that to scare new people. We will be selling the big book at the airport tonight. <laughs> I remember I was doing that in Alabama. I was speaking in Alabama. Now, if you're in Alabama, every, every conversation ends with, this is how they say goodbye in Alabama, roll tide. <laughs> so the whole conference, we'd say amen, hallelujah, and? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do the ducks say? Quack, quack. How fitting for an AA conference, huh? A bunch of quacks. So anyway, let's see, where was I? Oh, oh I, I, come out of, I come out of jail. The only thing I have going for me is I can play the drums. And now I found my drink. My drink was Southern Comfort. Improperly named. No one was ever comfortable when I drank Southern Comfort. Right, but it was half round and it fit in my boot when we go to the concert, you know. And uh, so I had that and oh, I found pill form alcohol. I liked snortable alcohol, uh, smokable alcohol, injectable alcohol. I liked it all, you know. <laughs> so what happened next? You might not believe this, but parts of this story is a blur. <laughs> so I'm running around in the streets. I got really the only thing going for me. I got a set of drums. Oh, yeah. I, are there any other liars here tonight? Huh? So your arm hurts. I get it. You're tired. Right? So I used to lie so much. I have fond memories of things that never happened to me. You know what I mean? You know, like when you're telling somebody a story, and even in the middle of town, you're like, did this happen? Did it happen? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, and in the doctor's opinion, it talks about we cannot distinguish the false from the real. I used to buy pictures. You know when you buy a, a picture frame, and it has that fake family in it? You know that family? I, would, I didn't have a family, so I'd leave them in there, and I'd put them up, and I'd give them all names, and I'd kill them all off for sympathy, for booze. Uh -huh. Oh, my poor Aunt Ethel, you know? 
I really did that. Everything was a lie. It had to be a lie. How could I just walk into a room and say, Danny's here? You know what I mean? I hated you, but I need you to love me. I hate you, but please love me. And I'll say whatever I need to say, or do whatever I need to do so that you'll love me. But stay away. It's a weird thing. You know that movie Barfly where she asked him, don't you hate people? And he says, no, but I seem to feel better when they're not around. <laughs> totally me, man. So, yeah, I used to lie so much. Here's the true part of this story was I was living in San Antonio, Texas, and I found out Rod Stewart was looking for a drummer. So I took all my drums. None of them matched. None of them were the same color because I'm an alcoholic. And I put them in the bottom of the bus, and I came out to Hollywood to be the next big rock star, right? And when I got to the bus station, the pawn shop was open too. So all my hopes and dreams, man, went right into that pawn shop and there they went. But I told so many people that I played drums for Rod Stewart that when Hot Legs comes on the radio, I admire my own drumming. <laughs> there have been times where I've had to stop and go, D I'm sure somebody's walked up to him and said, dude, I know one of your drummers. I never made it to the audition. I never met the guy, right? I would, I would go to auditions with no drum set and sticks only, right? And I would tell them, imagine a drum set. It's like being an attorney and saying, imagine that I've passed the bar. Just imagine, right? And I was serious, I, you know, so... Oh, man. So many times I would show up in the brass ring. Somebody would be trying to hand me the brass ring, and I would just smack it out of their hand, you know. Every time, man, me and alcohol showed up. Alcoholism. I knew, you know, I knew I was an alcoholic, but I didn't know what alcoholism was. I didn't know about the mental obsession and the physical allergy and the spiritual malady. I didn't know any of that. I just equated, I'm a loser and I deserve what's happening to me. I'm never going to be anything. And you know, when my father used to give me these beatings, I used to imagine that he was, he, he'd give me a loser balloon. It's the best way I know how to describe it. Do you, do you have children? Do you ever buy your kid a, a, a balloon? You have to tie it to their wrist so they don't let go of it and you don't have to go buy another one. I felt like I had these balloons that were, I couldn't let go of, and it said loser on it. And everybody knew, you all knew I was a loser. You know, like in eighth grade, when you have to walk across the gymnasium, that long, long walk to, would you like to dance? Remember that walk? And you walk over and you say, excuse me, would you like to dance? And she says, I don't like this song. <laughs> loser! Walk across the entire gym. Everybody's looking at you. She said no. And then to the same song, she goes out with some Letterman big teeth jock, right? And that's how I felt all my life. You were going to have a wife. You're going to have happiness. You're going to know peace. I'm never going to have it. And this is the way it is. And it's all my father's fault, right? And I carried around a hollow point 38 bullet in my little watch pocket of my 501 jeans. And that was for his head, right? Everything that happened to me was his fault. All those beatings, you know? So, uh, I'm in Hollywood and things would go up and down and I'd get with some bands and I knew music was going to be up and down. So I better get a trade. So, uh, I got into the electrical, uh, field. I'm still 40 years later. I'm a, a union electrician. It's held me in good stead. Still temporary. Still might, still, you know. And uh, I got married because this woman taught me how to eat exactly the right thing and not throw up and be able to drink two pints of Gilby's gin before breakfast. And I admired that, so I married her. I thought that was a night. I thought she was a genius. And uh, she got hit on the back of a Harley Davidson. And she, uh, she didn't make it. You know, so many people that we know, you know, here, here we are, you know. And I look at like an empty chair here and there. And I think about these people that didn't get to make it, you know. And these people that will never see the inside of an AA meeting. Yet here we are, you know. Here we are. Man. Anyway. I was 22 years old. I was living in San Francisco. I was wearing everything I owned. 
I had holes all in my front of my teeth. I had mats in my hair. I had no idea where my family was. I had no moral compass. I had no anchors whatsoever. I didn't know anyone. It wouldn't, the only two people it would have affected if I died was the two guys that would have to zip me up and throw me in a van. And uh, I, I used to think about, if you know, if you ever been to San Francisco on Market Street, they have these trolleys and these buses that swing in real fast. And I used to try to get up the courage to just kind of like lean in front of one of them, you know, and just kind of end it. And I was always too chicken to kill myself, but I was always okay with if whatever I was participating in killed me, I was cool with that. I was okay with that because I definitely didn't want to be alive anymore. And I sure didn't want to be me. You know, every time I'd come to in a mental institution strapped down or in a jail cell hogtied and that fluorescent light was right there, once again, I was still alive and still me. And I was mad. I think that's what I fed off of, you know. I just, I was too angry to die. You know, and the only two things I could do to get a drink was I'd go to the liquor store, and when the, the guy behind the counter wasn't looking, I'd go snatch me a bottle. Because you know, Angel, where they kept my booze? Wasn't in the refrigerator. It was on the shelf next to the mayonnaise. It was called MD 2020, or Night Train. 79 cents at the time. Didn't stop the screaming voices, but it kept them about 10 feet away. You know? And the other thing I could do, they used to smoke. Did you know that there are some people that believe a cigarette butt in a drink is a non-drinkable beverage? <laughs> Rookies! So we used to be allowed to smoke in bars in California, right? Which is good for drunks. Because then I could go in with two Tupperwares underneath my shirt, the only shirt that I owned, and I'd go over to where the little brass rail was, right? You know, the place where the, the waitress would go and get the unfinished drinks. It's hard to say if you're an alcoholic. It should be a field sobriety test. Unfinished drink. I never had an unfinished drink. Even during a riot, I'd finish it in between blows, you know? And she'd go out and she'd bring all these little drinks back and, and I'd dump them in, she'd go back out and I'd dump them in the Tupperware. And then I'd take them out back behind the bar and I'd take the empty one and I'd strain all the, all the loogies and... Oh, listen to you. Really? Watch this, watch, watch this, Angel. How many people here have sniffed a substance off of a public bathroom before? Come on, come on. Isn't that funny? But isn't it funny when we get sober, we're like, is, is that filtered water? <laughs> hey, those cupcakes are gluten-free, right? <laughs> you used to drink turpentine. Let's not forget who we are. I sponsor a guy who injected a piece of bagel chip once. He didn't get high, but he craved cream cheese for about a week. I mean, the price that we'll pay to get out of right here, right now. I will put my family at cost. You know, my friend Carl, Carl says it the best. I wouldn't trade my little daughter for the first drink, but I sure would for the second one. Because I can't stop. I can't not take that drink, right? And so... Uh, that's what I got going for me. I'm sleeping in doorways. I'm wearing everything. I don't know where anybody is, you know, and the only, I'm not having any human contact at all. And uh, I'm just, I've given up. I'm, I'm hopeless. I've given up. This is how I'm going to die. I probably look like, I'm 22. I look like I'm 50. I'm iodine colored. I'm wine colored. I'm sleeping in Civic Center Park and I'm hiding in a phone booth. I know there's some young people here. Is there anybody here that's never used a pay phone? Where you, huh? No? Yeah. Did you know we used to have, we used to be able to have these machines that you could call someone. And if you called, if you called Susan and she wasn't home, the phone would just ring and ring and ring. She was with Tim eating dinner and they weren't taking pictures of their dessert, making you look at it. And guess what? If you wanted to see Angel's sleeping cat, you had to go to his house. Knock on the door and say, I hear you have a cat sleeping. I'd like to see it. Right. 
So I'm hiding in this payphone, right? I'm hiding in there because I can't, I can't let you see me. If you, make, if you lock eyes with me, you know I'm a horrible, soulless loser, right? And uh, I just hide in there and I'd watch people go into work in their fresh little clothes and, you know, and I'm like, it, it, I was astonished how people could do that. You know, how do you do that? How do you keep a job? How do you keep your hands off of somebody when they anger you? How do you, how? And while I'm hiding in there one day, somebody put a bumper sticker in there that says, got a drinking problem? Call Alcoholics Anonymous. And no one had ever told me in all the psychiatrists I'd been to, reform schools, counselors, no one ever mentioned AA to me, ever. And so I called Collect. And she, with no coins needed. And she said, Alcoholics Anonymous, this is Judy, can I help you? And I said, <laughs> that's all I could say. I'm either yelling at you or I'm crying. The machine is broken, right? And she says, do you think you can make it to Bush and Gough Street, which is up here, and I'm in Civic Center Park. Now, if you're an alcoholic and there's not a drink at the other end of this trip, that's a long way, man, long way. So I go, and I'm walking up there, and I don't know what I'm going to expect, you know? Now, when I walked in, did this ever happen to you, Greg? Did you ever walk into the bar you think it's for the very first time and the bartender says, hold on a minute. You, out! <laughs> Anybody ever had that happen to them, you know, where you think this is the first time, right? And you think, well, apparently I've been here before. <laughs> apparently all that broken stuff right there was from my last visit. Now, if you'd have come up to me at my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and you told me, get out of here, you, we don't want you here. I would have known. If six guys had surrounded me and said, we're throwing you out, let's go. But they came at me in a way that I had never been come at. This, it's always a big dude. I saw this big guy see me. This guy was ginormous, man. It's like a tackle on a football team. And he started coming. <laughs> now, I look like a chick on speed. I'm like a size nun. I think I look cool, you know. And he comes over and I'm like, mm. and he says, I love you. And he puts his arms around me and he hugs me and I said, don't do that. And he said, yeah, whatever. And he picks me up again. And you know, I thought the price of admission to Alcoholics Anonymous was to be hugged by another man. And let me tell you, it was almost too much for me. It was almost too much. Greeters, when there's only one door in an AA meeting and there's six greeters on either side, oh my God. You know, when you go to a big social meeting and there's all that talking before the meeting and everybody's chit-chatting, how do you chit-chat? How do I pretend to care about your damn day? You know, when I'm sitting here thinking, you know, how am I going to make it through the day without killing myself or four other people? You know, and you're just inside, you're thinking, ah, you know, and everybody's all, you know, and you just, you know, you, you just walk through it and how are you? Fine, 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 you know. I've pulled up to meetings and seen greeters and thought, not tonight, man, you know. And I'd go into that meeting, I'd go there every night, and I knew all the way there, I'd drink all day, and I'd walk up that hill, and I'd think, gotta hug the big guy, gotta hug the big guy. Okay, he's gonna hug me, he's gonna hug me. I was powerless, man. I wouldn't need a ball bat to, to keep him from hugging me. And of course I'm not gonna do that, you know? And I, I didn't know what I felt there, but I knew there, there was something there. Like the old saying is, I didn't know what you had, but I knew I didn't want what I had anymore, which was nothing. Right? Just a bad attitude, and I was broken. And that guy, every time he'd come in, and I'd just go, okay, and he'd hug me. He'd just hug me. And then one night, after about three weeks, I walked in, and there he was. He just kept talking to those people. And I was like, <laughs> hey. Somehow, somehow, the magic of AA happened just from that one guy. I turned into this person that wanted a hug and was able to say, 
where's my hug? Give me a hug. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. Because, hey, I'm the guy, if you cut me off on the freeway, I'll follow you home for 20 miles and pull you out of your window and give you a little group therapy because, well, that's what my dad taught me, right? When, someone, when you disagree with something, you just beat on it till it agrees with you. But now I'm like, can I have a hug? So I started eight years of I sponsor myself, right? It's called untreated alcoholism. Perhaps you've seen some of these people at your meetings. They have a big rope for a vein right here on their forehead. They're always straightening the chairs. At the steering committee meeting, they're glad to argue for two hours over what kind of cup you should have. Don't ask those people to sponsor you. They're unhappy. Look for the people that are having fun. The definition of a sponsor is fun. Now, some people say, go find somebody who has what you want. Well, if I'd have done that, I'd have found somebody who said, hey, can I still drink and take Klonopin and smoke weed? Well, maybe a little too early to be throwing it back into your court, Danny. Let's, how about we go out and find somebody who has what he wants? Angel looks like he has what he wants. He looks comfortable sitting in the skin he's sitting in, right? Amen? Yeah. Hallelujah. Roll Tide. <laughs> so look for the people that are up here having fun, right? Look for people that are in the middle. We're like penguins, you know? Have you ever seen the March of the Penguins? Pengu Alcoholics Anonymous, just like a group of penguins. Penguins cannot survive without each other, right? Minus 70 degrees in Antarctica. The only way they can, newcomer comes up, they're like, come on, get a commitment, get a commitment, come on, come on, come on. All right, you're all right, you set up the chairs, set up the chairs, all right, all right. And then they, they, they have to keep moving out and they need each other. That's what we are, a bunch of penguins. Or here, ducks, right? So uh, eight years of uh, getting to the meeting late so I don't have to, you know, so the greeters are already sitting down. I'm pretty much just going to meetings so I can ask girls, would you like to go to coffee? <laughs> you like, I, can, I see some of you know what coffee is, right? And I leave the meeting 20 minutes early so I wouldn't have to talk to you and I wouldn't have to do the prayer, you know, and I wasn't making any changes. I didn't know what AA was. I didn't have a big book, I didn't have a sponsor. I always had an agenda, I always had a motive. I was still getting in fist fights, no changes. So on my eighth anniversary of untreated alcoholism, I parked my Harley in the doorway of a meeting. I dared anybody to touch it. I went and took a medallion and I gave AA the finger. I said, you know what, you don't work. You don't work, screw you. And I went out, took a drink that night, stayed out for 15 years. And every single day, Every day, I wanted to not drink. Every day. I, I had been exposed to another way, you know? I mean, if you go to the gym, I mean, you could come here and not like this, but if you come here and do this thing, you don't, just like my sponsor told me, you don't have to like it, you don't have to think it's a good idea, all you have to do is do it. I can go to the gym and hate it the whole time, but something's gonna happen. And something happened to me in that eight years of going to meetings, I was exposed to another way. And deep, deep down, my innermost self, you know when you read on page 30, it said, we learned we had to concede to our innermost self that we were alcoholic. This is the first step to recovery. And I had a guy ask me a couple weeks ago, what is my innermost self? I say, you know when you're doing something wrong and that voice goes, that ain't right. <laughs> that is your innermost self. Right? Deep, deep down, I knew there was another way, but I didn't think it was ever going to happen to me. So I was living in Venice, California. I had been reduced to three possessions a red nosed pit bull named Brooklyn, a Honda Civic with no front or back windshield, and my side tools. I had it going on. I was a catch. And I had a girlfriend named Vicky Smart, Victoria Smart. Hi, Victoria. When I met you yesterday, it made me think of Vicky. I'm going to tell you about her right now. So I had this girl 
friend named Victoria Smart. She's no longer alive. Uh, she had a distended liver and she started taking Vicodin and she ended up overdosing in her apartment and she, she died. But before she died, she got me to my sponsor. So I would sit every day when I'd get off of work, I'd sit on the back porch and I would drink 10 king size Coronas. That's 200 ounces of Corona. I'd take about 20 Klonopin. If you don't know what Klonopin is, it's like Valium with a cape. It's super Valium. And I'd smoke a quarter ounce of OG Kush. That's what it took me to get to, just to be able to go to sleep and to get up and do it again. And every night, Vicky, I'd be sitting there probably on my sixth or seventh Corona and I'd hear her car start. She'd come around passenger window would go down and she'd say I'm going to a meeting tonight Danny and I'd go yeah tell him I said hi for those of you listening on CD I just gave the finger (laughs) (coughs) if I had been able to do column work at the time this is what it would have looked like I have a resentment to Alcoholics Anonymous and a bunch of people listed by name the book thumpers and all those people, you know. Here are the 62,000 reasons why. Affects every area, seven bagger, no doubt. And my part is, if I were to able to tell the truth and to articulate how I really felt was, I hold AA in contempt because I know I will never know what permanent sobriety is. Because I will never become a part of that group. And because I don't know how to articulate that, it just comes out as, Arr! right? So when you see the guy in the back of the room, The guy with his neck up like that, just remember that, right? Because our job as AA members is that first side of the triangle, right, is unity. It's to go out there and help them become a part of. So anyway, amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. (laughs) Go Ducks. Okay. I love being sober, man. If you think your life is over and you're new and you're coming to AA, let me tell you, it's just beginning. You lost your mom, you lost your kids, you lost your dad. There are moms, dads, brothers, sisters. Everything you need is in this room right now in Alcoholics Anonymous. True story. True story. So one night... Vicky pulled around. Instead of rolling the window down, she got out of the car. She comes around and she opens the door. And she said, Danny, if you want me to keep feeding Brooklyn, if you want to keep sleeping in my bed and me washing your clothes, living here rent free, me being your girlfriend, you're getting in the car tonight. Guess what I did? I got in the car. I got, I mean, I may be a drunk, but I'm not stupid. I got in the car. She took me to this meeting in Beverly Hills called Rodeo. Okay, it's like every Friday night, about three times this size. They all have nine-digit salary, veneer teeth. They're tan in the winter, and they all wearing Jimmy Choo, Prada, you know, Dolce Gabbana, and they're all just doing better than you. And here I am, pig pen, with two loser balloons. They're just, you know... Here I am. How many days do you have now, Danny? That's what people would ask me. You know, that's a terrible thing to ask somebody. It really is. That's called division. That's not unity. You know, on page 91 of working with others, it says, see your man alone. There's a reason for that, that we don't embarrass each other. Right? Yeah. So she took me to this meeting. I'm sitting, I'm way back there, uh, you know, like, way back there on the aisle, and I'm sitting there, and she took me there to hear Earl. Earl was the speaker. I'd never heard of him, never heard him talk in a meeting, never heard of him. And this guy started talking, and it was like me and him were the only ones in the room. It was like he was talking right to me. He, he might have been saying, Danny, I felt like you felt. I've been where you've been, man, and I'm telling you, you can do it. And this voice inside my head said, maybe. And I said to the guy next to me, I said, what? And the guy goes, I didn't say anything. Maybe. 
I, had ne- I didn't recognize that it was my voice saying something positive. My voice never said anything positive. My voice had nothing good to say. I'd wake up and before my feet even hit the ground, said, why even get up here? You owe everybody money, everybody's mad at you, they just pull the covers back over, dude. Maybe. Maybe you don't have to die. Maybe you can be your daughter's father. Maybe you can live. Maybe you can get sober. Maybe you can do it. For the first time in my life, this little flicker of hope, it's called hope. I've sensed a little bit of hope. And I, after everybody moved away, man, I had to wait over there and everybody got done thanking Earl. I walked up and asked the guy, would you sponsor me? And he said, yeah. And we started a, a road. Or, you know, Earl didn't, he didn't tell me about AA. He showed me AA. He didn't say, go set up the chairs. He said, come on, let's go thank the speaker. Let's set up chairs, right? When, when I'd go to Men's County Jail in L.A., Earl would wait seven hours for me to see me for four minutes, right? He'd drive across the state to see me in a facility for 20 minutes, right? Every time I ended up in Thalian's Mental Center or Glendale Adventist on a 72-hour hold, guess who was there? Earl, a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous who didn't give up on me, right? Because Donald Madden didn't give up on him because, because of the teachings of Norm Alpey, because of Chuck C., because of Bill W. Just one man carrying the message to another man, you know? And everybody told Earl, he, it took me 15 years to get a year. And everybody in L.A. told Earl, you got to let go of them. You know, we're, we're hard to love. We're really hard people to love because, you know, we... You sponsor people and you get close to people and they die, you know? And it's tough to watch somebody doing the things to themselves, watching them have their lives fold over on themselves and you're powerless. I remember driving away from Earl before and seeing him in the mirror and watching. He would tell me, he would tell me when I would drive away needing some gas money or some food money that he would stand there crying knowing that that was the last time that he would see me. And, People would say, let go of Danny, man. You just have to let go of him. Lori, his wife, said, you, you got to let go of Danny. He's, not, he's just not going to make it. So I'm telling you, if you've been coming in and out of AA, I flew here to tell you, don't give up. Don't give up. If there's somebody you've been sponsoring, don't give up. Our job is to extend the hand. That's it, right? I'm responsible when anyone, anywhere including the people that just because they didn't call me at 1218 on Thursday or this ridiculous stuff, you know, right? It's an honor to sponsor people, you know? I have like a $30,000 Harley and a beautiful Audi and I have a bunch of stuff, but you know, some of the things that are the most important thing to me is like when a sponsee sends me a text picture of his daughter graduating and says, bro, you had everything to do with this, which I don't think so, but those are the things. I look at a little chip that a, a new guy gave me and I know, you know, that somehow... This one of the promises came true, you know, where not only am I not a burden to somebody else that. You know what I'm trying to say. It's just amazing, right? So. All right, so I'm going in and out, in and out, in and out. And finally, on February the 18th, you know, I'm going in and out, man. I can't I'd go to meetings and I do my commitment you know, and the beast, you know, we have this, the mental obsession somewhere in my lineage, we call the mental obsession, the beast. And in my head, she's like a little five foot two hooker, right? I'd be, I'll set up the chairs and be doing my commitment. And all of a sudden she'll just show up. Hi, Danny. Always at the break. You know, we have these speaker meetings. There's a 10 minute speaker, a break, and then the speaker. And that break is dangerous to the new guy, man. Right? Because you're sitting there thinking, oh, I've heard this guy before. And then she shows up. Let's go get a Corona. (laughs) And she's such a liar. She doesn't tell me, you know, she doesn't tell me the whole story of what's really going to happen. You know? 
And so I'd go in and out, in and out. And finally, on February 18th, 2008, I took my last drink. I smoked my last puff. I took my last pill, and I knew it was going to be my last. I was done. I was finally beaten into a state of reasonableness, you know? I knew I was done. And I went to my home group. My home group. Do you guys have participation meetings out here? Yes. Do you have these kind of meetings where you can't raise your hand? You got to be called on. Do you have those meetings? It's a great place to get a resentment, you know? <coughs> oh, really? I have to be good enough to be called on? And then they'll ask you, you know, they'll go, Susan, listen, will you lead the meeting? Whatever you do, don't call on Fred. He's nuts. And accidentally, Susan will call on Fred, and the whole room will go, oh. <laughs> Not acting better than they feel. <coughs> and I had become the guy that should not be called on. It was a very upscale meeting, good old AA, Monday night, a one-hour meeting, 10-minute lead, and then they call on people to share on whatever the topic was. And they just knew me as the angry guy that Earl sponsors. And I'd sit next to Earl. So right about this time, the only thing I believe in, I believe that Earl believes. I don't know if you know his story, but Earl talks about the plants a lot, you know, about how the plants give out oxygen and breathe carbon monoxide, right? And, so they have this thing going, and I, I'm, I'm into science and all that stuff, and so I believe in that, and I believe that something made oxygen, and I believe, I believe that Earl believes. For most of us, our, our first high exposure to a higher power is usually the belief that our sponsor believes in. That was my experience. I used to sit in the meeting, and I'd look at Earl out of the corner of my eye, and I'd see, I know that he's a smart guy, and he's, he likes this stuff. He likes it. He believes in it. Okay. I believe that he believes. So right about this time, too, you know, I made the mistake of saying to Earl, you know that greeter commitment, dude? They're a little too tenacious out there. They need to make a little room. And he said, that looks like a good commitment for you. <laughs> and the sponsor translator turned that into get that commitment or die. He just, that's all he said was, so I went and got that commitment. So now every Monday night, I'm going to meetings every night. And every Monday, I'm built, I think I was working on the W Hotel in Hollywood, you know, and I'm not feeling the magic. I'm not feeling the gift of the miracle, you know. I'm just sitting in my apartment after a long day, and I got to go to that dumb meeting with those dumb people for that dumb, and listen to rich people problems, right? And uh, right about this time, I had never paid my taxes, ever. I owed the IRS like 130 grand. Why would I pay my taxes? I need every drop. I'm going to be dead tomorrow, right? So they put a levy on my bank account. I'm getting like only like 30% of my wages, you know, and, and I'm driving this, uh, I'm driving this uh, Ford Ranger. It's got dents all over it, whiskey wrinkles, you know. My, my drunk truck that I had to park like a block away because I was embarrassed. And I, I'd go to the meeting and I'd greet. And I'm sitting there. And all, I'm, all I believe is I believe that Earl believes and that's it. And I'm thinking, I got this maybe thing going. Okay, maybe, maybe. But I'm uncomfortable. And I do not feel a part of. Every time they read the promises, I would get mad, you know. And I just keep looking at y'all and I'm comparing how I feel to how you look. And I'm listening to all. And I know I still don't, I, I think maybe, but it's not a very solid maybe. It's like, a, ugh, I don't think I'm going to make it, you know. It just looks like, what a tall order, you know. And this, I'm sitting there, and this woman, she goes, she points at me. This is how my maybe turned into heck yeah. She goes, you. She points at me, would you like to share? And the whole room went, uh-oh. <laughs> and I turned to Earl. I said, Earl, can I, can I say whatever I want? He says, go ahead. And I said a bunch of things that I will not say from this podium tonight. <laughs> I called him everything, man. I said, you know what? Because, you know, at the meeting, too, they'll say, they'll say uh, now we'll lead the meeting with participation. If you were called on last week, please pass. We'll start the way we do for the last nine years, Nancy. And Nancy never passed. Oh, I hated Nancy. And I cussed them all out. I told them, you know what? Yeah, I'll share. I said, you know what? I hate every one of you. You're all a bunch of liars, especially you, Nancy. Stop. <laughs> Nobody needs to hear you anymore, Nancy. You know, you're all full of, you're all, I called them a bunch of, very bad things. Uh -huh. And I told him, you know what? 
there's only one person in here that cares about me. And all the rest of you, if I was on fire right now, there ain't a person in this room that would pee on me. And I dared anybody to say anything. And nobody said nothing. Except Margie. Margie was sitting two rows behind me. And Margie said, I'd pee on you, Danny. And the whole room, the whole room just fell out for five minutes in hysterics. And it was like, it was like I was on some kind of drug looking down at myself, watching myself. I was laughing. The most important thing that happened was that I was laughing at my own expense. I felt my two hands just unfold open, man. I, I, lit I don't know about you. I never, the only time I let go was to get a better grip. You know what I mean? I am not a let goer. <laughs> but I let go and I was laughing yeah. and that maybe turned into yes 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 I was having that own little moment to myself it was like it was like they turned the lights on and I'm like I'm in AA look at this look 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 at that look it was like I had never like oh my god it was like, just like in the book, yes, I, I, this too can happen to me. And I turned into that, you know that dog, you know when you go to somebody's house and they have that kind of dog that's like, <laughs> yeah, whatever you do, don't touch the ball. If you touch the ball, all we're doing is the ball. I turned into that dog. <laughs> yeah. And I ran over to Earl. I said, Earl, what do you want me to do? And then we had a guy at my meeting. It was like a UFC fighter, tattoos all across his face, like muscles like this, right? And the only thing he was missing was a sign that says, don't talk to me. And I said, Earl, what do you want me to do? And he said, go say hi to that guy. And I'm like, are we looking at the same guy? And somehow, when Margie said she'd pee on me, I must have turned into Forrest Gump. I said, okay. I walked over there, it's called contrary actions. I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I would like to do. For me, the biggest contrary action is a non-action. And that's what I started doing. And I started on that road of, you know, the, the big secret around here, if you're new, what is the big contrary action to selfish self-centeredness? The constant thought of others, right? The whole, with the goal that we're trying to, unity is, unity is the body, I bring it to a meeting. I can't stay sober right by myself I can do a lot of things I can tattoo I can play drums to anything I can take a Harley apart put it back together I can build a power plant right I can do all these things but for some reason I cannot not pick up that drink by myself B by me and me alone I will drink but for some reason I come in here and you plus me is a power greater than myself so unity is the body I bring it to a meeting I can't but we seem to be able to recoveries of the mind this isn't about stopping. We've all stopped before. Haven't just stopped many times? How do I get comfortable enough in this earth suit so that I can not pick up a drink, so that I can go through life's feelings of bad and good and stay sober? 12 steps, right? I mean, I don't believe that AA teaches me to be spiritual. I mean, you all saw that little baby that's around this weekend, right? I mean, you ever, you know, when you, you ever held a little baby? You know when you hold a little baby? When you hold a little baby, you don't think, now there's a liar. <laughs> yeah. Look at him. Oh, he's gonna love Oxycontin. Look at him, man. No. You don't think that. You think, what a beautiful, perfect little ray of light. And the first time I held a baby, it gave me promise to the second step. Because I got stuck at the second step. I thought, restored. I've never been sane. But when I saw that little baby, I thought, you know, I must have came here a perfect little ray of light. And AA gives me these 12 principles. The second side of the triangle of recovery is the 12 steps. It gives me the ingredients to the perfect brownie, right? That if I do exactly this, that I can take away fear. I can unzip fear like a rubber suit. Take Take it off and all that's left is love man right is love if I remove the fear if I remove the ego if I'm not coming from a place of self I love you it's you know the only reason I ever drank the only reason I ever put all that stuff into me was to feel better and now it feels better to be kind so what do I win for doing the 12 steps you get to go say hi to that guy 
You get to go to your meeting, your home group, and you get to go, instead of in your little comfortable circle, you get to go look outside and see that person that's 100 feet away from the door that doesn't know how to come through that door by themselves because they're scared. And you get to walk out there and say, do you have a place to sit? You know, because that's the only thing that was going to work for me was gentle, gentle, kind love. That's what helped me stay sober, you know, and so... Uh, Man, it's just been an amazing, terrific road of, you know, of, uh, I talk to my sponsor every single day, right? I am actively sponsored. I defer to another one's thinking. I work the 12 steps as outlined in that hum humongous book right there, <laughs> right? I work with another guy. If you're not, if you're missing the buzz, the big buzz of Alcoholics Anonymous, May I suggest that you go and reach into hell and pull somebody out and sit across a table with them and drink coffee until one day you get to see the light of maybe go across their eyes, you know? So I get the honor of sponsoring other men and I go to meetings, you know, and, uh, you know, I hear people, you ever hear this one? Don't drink no matter what. You ever heard that? Now, if Pixie and I could not drink no matter what, we wouldn't have had to get on an airplane and come and speak. They'd go, well, where's the speaker? Oh, they're, 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 they're back at home not drinking no matter what. I, I'm the, I am the flip side of that. You give me a good reason, and I, I drink no matter what. So I have to do this. I have to stay in the middle. And the middle for me was having a commitment was setting up chairs every Thursday at my home group, being the cake chick. I was the first person at my home group that was a man that did the cake commitment. So I insisted they call me the cake chick. <laughs> and I was good too. Right on. Right on, baby. I'd swing it through the aisle, man. I've, been, I've done all, all those different commitments, you know, and I've always stayed right in the center. And in the center for me now, what I know to the center for me is, is, an, uh, is my sponsor in one hand and a, and a sponsee in the other. And I don't do this thing perfect. And, and uh, I'm just a lucky, lucky, lucky guy who gets to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm going to close. Can I give you one of my sponsor stories? Do I got time for a sponsor story? Yeah. I'll give you one of my sponsor stories, okay? Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Go Ducks! Go Ducks! <laughs> they got a mascot like a duck running around out there. Push-ups. Duck push-ups. So, uh, you know, back when I was... Uh, some of the highlights, you know, I'm a superintendent, uh, IBW, uh, union electrician. I, I look out for like 70 people. You know, how do you get from a doorway wearing everything you own to being in charge of 70 people? <laughs> Alcoholics Anonymous, right? I've paid back the IRS. I got my first tax refund check last year. I've, uh, I've done the work here. I've done the work, and I always give it right back to my sponsor in AA. I don't take it, any credit for it, you know? And uh, back when, uh, when I was about nine months sober, I was living in this little, this little, like, it wasn't an apartment. It was like this one-room box, right? And it had no air conditioning. It was like 117 degrees, and I wasn't feeling the miracle. And it, there was a, they were garnishing my check. And my spot, I'm sitting there trying to talk myself into acting better than I feel, take a shower, Put a nice shirt on, go to your meeting, smile, don't offend anyone. That's a successful meeting. <laughs> right? You know? <laughs> and the phone rings, and it's my sponsor. Now, when your sponsor calls, if you're doing brain surgery, you put a towel on the head, and you answer the phone, that's your sponsor, right? And Earl says, meet me at the corner. I don't know if you know who Earl is. Let me tell you, my sponsor is relentless. My sponsor, man, is the most amazing, incredible, relentless, giving man that I've ever had the honor to know. He's my family. I love him more than anybody I've ever known in my family. You know, he's the most important relationship I have is Earl. So uh, 
If Earl called and told me to paint this room orange right now, I'd have to say, what shade? Probably Oregon duck shade color, right? So Earl says, meet me at the corner. Okay. <laughs> Settle down. It's just a story. So, so I'm sitting there. You remember, everybody in here, remember your first six months? I mean, there's a reason they get those 30-day chips to me should be the size of a Frisbee made out of gold. I mean, oh, my God. 30 days without a drink. I mean, in six months, they're just like, you know? Ugh. You know what I mean? I mean, if you're newly sober, that is not what, if you remember, like, learning a sport when you're new, that's not what it feels like. Being newly sober is not what's the right. You hang around, and it gets more comfortable, and it gets better, Right? So I'm sitting there, and I'm feeling uncomfortable, and Earl says, meet me at the corner of Ventura and Reseda. So I'm, okay, jump off the shrimping boat, get in my little dented uh, Ford Ranger, and go drive and meet Earl. <laughs> Bye, Angel. He'll be back. Okay, so, so I go, and I, I get in my little Ford Ranger, and I go to meet Earl, right? And uh, I park it, like, on the other side of the parking lot because I'm embarrassed by it. And I'm in my dirty Carhartts, and I'm just feeling, like, low self-esteem is a goal for me at this point. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't deserve, I still don't deserve a chair or the air in the room. And I go walk up to Earl, and he's holding this envelope like this. And if you saw Earl last year, if you know, Earl's very animated, right? And I'm like, how you doing? He goes, this is for you, right? <laughs> And I'm like, what is it? And he's like, open it and find out, you know? <laughs> and so there's this stack of money about an inch deep. And I'm like, come on, Earl, you saved my life. I don't want your money. He goes, this isn't from me. Read the paper. And it says, this is an anonymous gift. Keep it or pass it on. He says, you know all the people at the Monday night meeting, the ones you hate, the ones you think wouldn't pee on you if you're on fire? Well, last Monday after you left, they passed the basket again. And they love you. And they don't want you to drink. And they wanted you to have two months of rent and truck payment. So I started getting emotional in front of a man in a parking lot in the sun. So I gave him a quick dude hug. And I ran off to my little Ford Ranger in the corner and he said the most important thing that anybody's ever said to me. He yelled to me, he said, Danny, you're part of something now. And everything I was holding in me, man, the mud, I just, I blew it right there, man. I mean, like boo-hoo, phlegm coming out, crying. Because I knew I really was, I really was, and I had proof, I had proof that I was something, you know? And I remember I was trying to drive home and I was so overcome with emotion in the middle of the street on Ventura Boulevard. There was a green light and a lady was next to me. She said, are you okay? And I said, I'm part of something. <laughs> <coughs> and I got home and I, I took that paper, you know, and I put toothpaste on it, just like when you're in jail, you know, and I stuck it up on the mirror. And, it, and I had tangible evidence that I was part of something, that I was, going, I was going to make it. I was going to make it if I just did what was put in front of me, what another man had taught me here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what I want to tell you if you're new. I came here to tell you that you're part of something, too. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.